Let's pray. I'll pray for us. Gracious Father God, we thank you for this final word from 1 Corinthians, from your scripture. Thank you that you have the final word in our lives. Uh, Please help us to listen to your word through your spirit. Open our hearts that we would listen to you and put into practice these words that give life, that lead to relationship with you, to forgiveness of sins, and uh, hope of knowing Jesus forever. So help us and help me to speak this word faithfully with clarity and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In the last month, the accounting and advisory firm, PwC, has been caught up in a tax scandal. You've probably seen it on the news. Now, what happened is about 10 years ago, the largest client of PwC, the Australian government, actually hired them to solve a tax problem. It was to tax large multinational companies like Google, Facebook, or Apple so that they pay their fair share of tax when operating in Australia. Now, all of this was confidential knowledge between PwC and the government. But some partners of the firm used this knowledge to gain new clients by helping them to avoid paying this tax. And in the end, the firm made profits from leaking this tax knowledge. All of this came to light recently, and eight partners, including uh, as well as the former CEO of PwC, have lost their jobs in the last week and the firm is now going into damage control. PwC is one of the global big four accounting firms in the world that has built its reputation on integrity, on trust. But right now, the Australian public uh, see the Australian office of PwC as standing for profit over principle. Laboring hard to make money at the expense of the public. Now, I wonder what happened in the culture of this organization that meant that it lost its way so far, where self-seeking behavior was winning over the service of the public good. Churches can lose their way as well. It was happening in the Corinthian church where selfish behavior was showing itself in various ways in the church. And tonight in chapter 16, as he concludes his letter, the apostle Paul is going to give his final word to this church. Now, at first you might read it as a random collection of final thoughts, but I want to propose that there's a thread running right through this final chapter, and that is Paul is reminding them of gospel love. To not yield to sinful selfishness, but to actually keep laboring in love. Christ's love. Now, we here at Bundy, we're not immune also to losing our way. And so we need this final word of Paul as much as the Corinthian church did. Now, three points I want to look at tonight as we look at this chapter. The first point is love in giving. Secondly, love for people, and thirdly, love in devotion. Well, firstly, love in giving. Look at verse 1. Now, about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. Now, the collection is mentioned in a few different books of the New Testament. 
The Apostle Paul is collecting money amongst Gentile or non-Jewish churches for the poor Jerusalem church. It seems that a famine affected the Jerusalem church in about AD 46 to 47. And so Paul is establishing this principle of mutual love. The Gentile Christians have benefited from the Jewish Christians in bringing the gospel to them. But now the Gentile Christians, in a better financial situation, are to help by loving the Jewish Christians in their time of need. Have a look at Romans 15, verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people. Therefore, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, so they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. You see that principle of mutual love and solidarity. Now that should always exist between Christians and between churches. And when Paul again writes about this collection in 2 Corinthians, he's really explicit about the reason that he wants them to give. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, Paul is saying that your giving reflects your understanding of the gospel. If you want to understand the motivation to be generous to others, you need to actually understand what Christ has done for you. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are deeply in debt to sin and to death. And Jesus pays the ransom. He wipes the debt clean at great cost to himself. He became poor by taking on himself our sin. He dies our death in order to give us the riches of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Now, Paul is saying if you understand this then, sincere gospel love should show itself in your giving. Uh, Giving is not to be this resentful obligation, but it is to be a generous and thankful response to the gracious love we have received from Christ. And so Paul sets principles for how to give in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. So have a look at these principles. How often should you give? Give intentionally, give regularly, Paul says. The Corinthians were to set aside money on the Sunday, which for the early Christians was their day of corporate worship and the first day of the week. Now, how much should you give? Paul says, in keeping with how you are prospering. In other words, relative to your income. Now, there is flexibility. Notice uh, there's no percentage mentioned by Paul, not the the tithe, the the 10% that you see at times in the Old Testament. But there's no percentage here given. There's no set figure for everyone. And neither does Paul say you should compare what you give to someone else. But there should be generosity. As God prospers your income, you should be willing to give more. 
But this should never be coerced by other people. In fact, Paul will go on to say this in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Now, how should the giving be handled once it has been collected? Verse 3, when I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. So in other words, this collection of money should be handled by trustworthy people, chosen by the Corinthians and not by Paul. People that the Corinthian church trust and authorize to represent them. But the people who would then be authorized by Paul in writing his letters to the Jerusalem church recommending them. Now, Paul says, as an optional extra, uh, this may also help by me coming along to travel with these delegates to safeguard the money and also introduce them to the representatives in the Jerusalem church. Now, in our church, we have uh, what's called a board of management, a collection of people voted for by members of this church, by you guys, and trusted to steward the giving of this church. And that's why we have a budget Uh, That's why we have externally audited audited financial statements every year. Uh, The the board of management um, handles the monies given to the hardship fund, and you've heard about that hardship fund. Uh, It was used to help people affected by the lockdowns during the pandemic, and recently we've also now used it to make a collection for the Vinicom family in their hardship. And there are strict requirements, according to the government, of how we handle those funds in the hardship fund. But according to the scriptures, it also matters to God how these funds are stewarded. Let me apply this for us, okay? Let me ask you this question. Does your giving reflect gospel love? Now, the fact that Paul raises the topic of this collection numerous times in the New Testament and to different churches, it means that Paul thinks this is an important issue for Christians. Giving is a matter of love. He says that in 2 Corinthians 8, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Your giving reflects how much you understand the gospel of love, Christ's love for you. And your love for him and others in response to his love for you. So Paul thinks it's right that giving is a test case for sincere Christian love. Now there is a bit of a danger of a pastor telling you what to give and and who to give to. Because we pastors have at times something to gain from that. But I'm going to ask you the questions raised in the passage tonight that we've looked at. How intentional is your giving? Is it regular? Is it in proportion to your income as God prospers you, Paul says? Uh, Have you given prayerful thought to your giving or or is it a kind of a haphazard thing, whatever's left over after your your groceries, whatever's in the bank? Uh, Maybe your circumstances have changed and it's actually a good time to review your giving 
If so, if you've decided in your heart between you and God about what to give, then you should actually not worry about what anyone else thinks because it's not up to them. Does your giving come from a cheerful and generous and thankful heart or does it come from a resentful and and kind of calculating stingy heart? If you haven't, thought much about your giving, then this is an opportunity to go home and make a time to review your decisions about it. But when you do, make sure your giving comes from a place of gospel love. Think of your king who came to serve you by paying this ransom that you could not pay to make you rich. And let the love of Christ be the model of your giving. So point one, love in giving. Here's the second point, love for people. Look at verse five. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I'll be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door of effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. Uh, in, in printed Bibles, actually, you, you can see that they call this section Paul's travel plans. And I think that's actually a bit misleading because the travel plans are actually not Paul's focus here in this passage. The people are the focus of Paul. The travel plans are, in fact, the secondary thing, secondary thing to his love for people. Let me show you. Look at verse 8. We see that Paul is going to stay in Ephesus where he is writing this letter and he's staying because God has opened a wide door for effective ministry. In other words, this means that people are hearing the gospel of Christ and they're responding to the gospel. So Paul's love is actually keeping him there love for the people. But notice then, Paul says that he's going to go to Corinth via Macedonia, a bit of a U-turn. Now, it's not the most direct route from Ephesus to Corinth, because you'd hop on a boat and sail there. So why would Paul take that U-turn? Well, it's most likely to encourage the churches along the way to Corinth, churches like the Philippians and the Thessalonians. Again, it's love That's motivating Paul. Now note that once he's in Corinth, Paul says that he wants to stay for a time and not pass through. And Paul's desire to stay is his desire to minister to the Corinthians, to strengthen their faith by teaching them more of this gospel. Again, love is driving Paul. And then Paul mentions earlier, as we looked at, the possibility of going with the the Corinthian delegates to take that collection of money from Corinth to the Jerusalem church. Again, what's driving Paul in this? Love for people. But you see, it's not only Paul's plans, but his plans for others. Take Timothy as an example. This is what Paul said about Timothy to the Corinthians back in chapter 4. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you, 
He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Uh, Timothy was Paul's trusted co-worker whom he treated like his own son. And he served with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys, and he's also sent by Paul to churches like that of Ephesus. And so Paul's plan is actually to send Timothy to the Corinthians before he gets there so that Timothy can encourage their faith. But then here in verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul adds a little bit more about Timothy's visit. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, now why would Paul have something to fear for Timothy? Why would he be cautious in sending Timothy? Why would it be possible that people at this church might in fact look down on Timothy? Now, remember, as we've been going through Corinthians, it is a church rife with divisions. It's a church with favoritism, and factions. Uh, This is a church where people are following some leaders and others are following other leaders, and, and none of this is caused by Paul or any of the Christian leaders. It's coming from the Corinthians themselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, you're still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, you are not, uh, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, uh, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. Now, so you can imagine that there's this group of uh, pro-Apollos people in the church, and they're thinking to themselves, who is this Timothy? Who is this guy that Paul is sending? I mean, Paul doesn't even think he's worthy of a visit from himself, so he sends his assistant. What kind of apostle is this? So imagine that's what Paul is thinking, that 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 might be the reception that Timothy might receive. But it shows you then the commitment of Paul to this people, the love that he has for these people, that he's even willing to send Timothy still, people who don't even like him. And not only is Paul willing to send Timothy, he's working really hard to send Apollos back to Corinth. Look at verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not willing at all to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Now by Paul wanting to send Apollos, it shows his commitment to work together in the gospel with Apollos. Uh, This is not a popularity contest for Paul. Otherwise, why would he want to send Apollos? Because that would only fuel more pro-Apollos interest. But notice Paul, Apollos doesn't actually want to go right now. Why, Why is that? Now, we're not actually told why, but I think Apollos doesn't want to fuel more division in the church. What's driving these guys? Gospel love for people. But note, in Paul's plans, there is this trust in God's sovereignty. Notice verse 7, if the Lord allows. Now, Paul knows that what is happening in Ephesus 
is God is opening a door. And, and Paul also knows that he's only going to go to Corinth if God is willing. The Apostle James very helpfully reminds us of this reality. James 4 verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead you should say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that. You know, like Paul, like James, we should all hold our plans loosely. For God is the one who's in control over them, not us. We like to think we're in control of all of our plans. We like to think that, but it's actually God who directs our steps, even when we make plans. I think of the Vinicom family, uh, who were to return to Groot Island to continue serving God there as missionaries amongst uh, the Aboriginal people there. And just a few weeks before they were to return, they had that life-changing accident on Christmas Day. How do we interpret that? God is closing a door and he is opening a door. So all of our plans are Lord willing. Let me ask you this question. Do your plans include loving people? Like the Apostle Paul, is that how you make your plans? Take, for example, travel plans. You know, what you notice on social media is that travel is really all about self, isn't it? Living your best life. Uh, doing up your van, breaking the shackles of convention, uh, to chase your version of freedom. It's all about self, isn't it? Or traveling to that exotic location just to get that Insta-worthy shot. Preferably including food. Preferably a giant swing. Okay. And what I often notice is, where, where are the people? And I'm not talking about a selfie with all your besties. Where are the locals? Where are the people that you're seeking to love and encourage? You see, for Christians, people matter. People matter more than anything else. It's, it's not to say that you can't take a holiday, you can't enjoy a beautiful location. God made a beautiful world for us to enjoy, but I wonder how often your travel plans are just about you. Uh, Lawrence and Junchin are one of the elders and his wife. They're going to, to Thailand very soon for a holiday. And as it happens, so is Clinton, our associate pastor, and his wife, Kirsty. They're leaving tomorrow for a holiday in Thailand. Nothing wrong with that. But while they're there, they're both incorporating visits to missionaries, Daniel and Tamami, who we've supported for years here at this church missionaries who serve in Thailand for decades. Now, why are they doing that? Because, you know, they could just spend another day or two at the beach. It's gospel love for people. They actually want to encourage Daniel and Tamami in their work for Jesus. Uh, in a matter of weeks, the 5 p.m. congregation will be farewelling Kirsty and Anna on a mission awareness trip in Niger. 
and they've paid for this trip with their own money, when people their age are going to Bali to party or the lagoons of Iceland for that amazing Insta-worthy photo, and they've decided to travel to one of the poorest nations in the world. Why? Gospel love for people. Uh, In the coming weeks also, Bundy's going to be sending Jane from this congregation, from our missions committee, to spend some time with Kat and Daniel, missionaries who we've supported. Kat came from this congregation at 5 p.m. to serve in an Asian country. And Jane's going to be spending a, a number of weeks there. Why? To encourage them. Jane could be doing all sorts of things with those weeks. Gospel love, though, drives her to do that. Or some of the crew here tonight who this week travelled to Bansdale Prezi to help with their uh, Get Some Fun holiday program where they share Jesus with community kids. Now, I'm sure those of you who went, you could have uh, spent time hanging out with your friends or maybe earning some more money from your part-time jobs. But in fact, they decided to use their time to share the gospel. Why? Gospel love for people. So let me ask you, does love for people factor into your plans? The way you spend your money, the way you organize your time, your priorities... Is it about encouraging others, strengthening their faith, sharing the gospel with those who are yet to hear of Jesus, or maybe just to help them in their current situation? Or are your plans all about pursuing you? Love in giving, love for people, thirdly, love in devotion. Look at verse 13. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Now, the Corinthian church that Paul's been writing to has struggled with all sorts of immaturity, divided by factions, uh, prone to sexual immorality, ungodly in their pursuit of freedom, selfish in their gatherings, even at the Lord's Supper, self-seeking in their pursuit of spiritual gifts, vulnerable to false teaching about the resurrection, immature. Now, here is Paul's direct charge to the Corinthians in verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, it's full of military metaphors. The Corinthian Christians face real threats to their faith in Christ, and Paul is saying you need to grow up in the battle ahead. A mature church stands strong in the faith, grounded in Christ, ready to serve him. But notice in verse 14, this strength is also tempered, as Paul shows us the use of this service. It's all about love. And this is an echo of chapter 13, which I think is is a bit of a climax in the book of Corinthians. Love is what it's about. And love is all over this chapter, this last chapter of Corinthians that we've seen. Without other-centered love, service means nothing to God. That's what one Corinthian said. And so much of the, the Corinthian immaturity was actually the preoccupation of self. And so, Paul says, you have to change your mindset 
It's all about loving others. It's all about the good of others. And that is why 1 Corinthians is as relevant to us today as when it was written to this church. Because here is a church battling with the pursuit of self, and Paul is now appealing to them, do everything in the love of Christ. And we live in an age of incredible self-love, self-expression. And our churches are as vulnerable to this this false teaching that says, elevate self above everything else, Christ, others. And what's Paul's answer? Do everything in love. Love of Christ, love of others above self. The funny thing is people will think that what I'm saying is to hate yourself. That's not what I'm saying. It's to forget yourself. It's about Jesus. It's about others. And and if those partners and that CEO and PwC had taken hold of that message, it would be better for all, wouldn't it? It's not about you guys. This is a message that the world needs. Do everything in love. And as if to help his readers understand what verses 13 and 14 look like in real life, Paul gives these examples of these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, in the verses that follow. Paul uh, describes these guys as the first fruits of Achaia, the province. And it's likely that they were amongst the earliest to become followers of Jesus in this region of uh, around Corinth. And they've shown themselves to be this lasting fruit in their devotion, their loving service of Jesus and others. And so Paul urges the Corinthians, recognize these guys, listen to them, submit to their servant leadership because they are the real deal. And it's likely that these three men went from Corinth to minister to Paul and they took a letter from the Corinthian church to Paul and now Paul is responding to the Corinthians in this letter now. But notice it's not just these men who showed such devotion in their love of Jesus. In verse 19, Paul highlights the example of Priscilla and Aquila, uh, this dynamic husband and wife team who had an early role in discipling the very gifted Apollos in Corinth. And we learn about this in Acts 18. And, and this is a couple who had some wealth because if you can afford a house large enough to house the church In Ephesus, you've got some means. And according to Romans 16, though, they are an example to all the churches uh, across the region, uh, to all the Gentile churches, Paul describes. Again, these are a great example of loving devotion to Jesus and his people. Now, this brings us to the final words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 21. This greeting is my own hand, Paul If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love, be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul reminds us of the seriousness of devotion to Jesus. Verse 22, it sounds like a harsh word, doesn't it? A curse be on those who do not love the Lord. But remember the context that Paul is writing to. He's writing to people who profess to follow Jesus, people who say they are 
Christians. Now remember back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the Corinthians of what is expected of believers. And he's not expecting this of non-believers. And in the case of 1 Corinthians 5, there's a Christian guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, but at the same time he's professing that he can still be part of the congregation. And it's a serious matter because Paul tells the Corinthians, you need to remove this guy from the church. So Paul's curse is for those who profess faith, but live as though they don't profess faith. You see, Paul cares about substance, not pretense. He cares about devotion to Jesus. If you say you love Jesus, then show it right until you meet him face to face. And Paul's final words are of grace and love of Christ. And in this way, Paul finishes the way he started the letter. He reminds them of the grace shown to them through Christ. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 1, all the way back at the start of this letter. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note verse 8, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul wants for the Corinthians. That is what Paul wants for every Christian and every church, that our love and devotion to Jesus will last right up to the point at which you meet Jesus face to face. That's why Paul wrote this letter. To help the Corinthians not to lose their way. Not to give in to sin, not to give up the truth of the gospel, not to promote themselves, but he wants them to be there on that day when Jesus returns. Is that what you want? Is that what you want for you? Is that what you want for those you love? Is that what you want for those who, who, who are your neighbors, who are your classmates, your housemates, your the people you study with, the people you work with, is, is that what you want? That they would be there right up to the end. So let me ask you this question. What is getting in the way of that? What's getting in the way of your devotion to Jesus? I'm going to get you to do homework, okay? So take a screenshot, take a little photo of this slide. It is, as it were, a, a, a casting ourselves back through the book of Corinthians. And Paul has addressed a number of threats to devotion to Jesus. Here are the things that can get in the way, that can prevent us from meeting Jesus on that last day. Human wisdom, not God's wisdom. Hero worship. Jordan Peterson is not Jesus, okay? Pride, envy, sexual immorality, conflict with fellow believers, the selfish pursuit of freedom, idolatry, selfishness, disorder in the church, false teaching, 
Now, all of these apply to us, but there might just be one of them, one of these threats that is particularly relevant to you right now. I want you to choose one, and I want you to go over those chapters in 1 Corinthians, and I want you to remind yourself of how much better and how much stronger is the grace and the love of Jesus than that threat. And then I want you to pray and I want you to seek God's forgiveness and his help so that he will strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's promise to you as you keep laboring in love, the love of Christ, until the day he comes to take you home. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we know that we are very little in our difference to the Corinthian church. We grapple with the same things. We struggle, Father, with the pursuit of self. We think we're wise in our own eyes. We follow popular heroes. We struggle with sexual immorality. We're puffed up with pride and envy. And for these things, we are so sorry. But we thank you for love, the love of Christ, the love that you showed to us in sending Jesus to die for our sins that we might be forgiven. And Father, help this love to compel us. Help it, Father, to drive our plans, our giving, our devotion to the Lord Jesus to give ourselves to sacrificial love for others in our time, in our money, for the glory of Jesus' reputation. And please help us to last until the end. Strengthen us, Father, for that great day when Jesus will return, when we will see him face to face and we will be home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.